there are different ways you can network. There are ways you can network that is a very, it's a very superficial transaction between two people. And then there's ways to network where you actually get to know people, take the time to get to meet them. And in that way, I think access more meaningful advice about what to do. Um, I think, you know, I think it can become very clear in DC that when people, you know, just interact with one another for power or for, you know, simply just connections or uh, social connections. But I think it makes a difference and people can discern very quickly if you actually are trying to get to know them as people and take interest in their families and their children and their jobs and how they're feeling. Um, And so I tried to do as much of that as possible, honestly, when I hit the ground in Washington. Hi there, welcome to another episode of our podcast, What Are You Going to Do With That? by the Minerva Center for the Rule of Law under Extreme Conditions at the University of Haifa. My name is Dani, and I'm a PhD candidate hoping to learn from the academic journeys of peers and early career researchers by chatting with them. This time, our guest is Jomana Kadur, who holds a law degree, a JD. In the following almost 10 years, Jomana has worked as a as an attorney and held various positions such as publication manager, senior associate, and senior policy analyst at the Brookings Institution, the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, and the Atlantic Council. I don't know how she did it, and hopefully we will find out today, but at the same time, Jomana got her LLM and is currently working on getting her SJD, which will make her a doctor of juridical science at Georgetown University. Before we dig into Jomana's journey, I'd like to invite you to check out our social media accounts on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, where you can find us with the handle at what to do with that, where the two is spelled like the number two. We also have a blog on our website and videos on our YouTube channel, and we'd love to hear what you think, so don't forget to rate us on your favorite podcast app. Okay, I can't wait to hear more from Jomana Kadur, so let me introduce you to her. Jomana started her academic journey with a BA in Human Biology and International Studies at the University of Kansas. She continued with a JD at the same university, during which she already received various awards, which is why it isn't strange that she continued with an LLM at Georgetown University and then at the same university with an SJD on the topic of ethno-sectarianism and its impact on constitutional drafting in Iraq, Bosnia, and Syria. In addition to having a list of publications and awarded grants and scholarships, Jomana has a ton of working experience in industry, as I mentioned earlier. Currently, in addition to her PhD, she is Senior Fellow and Head of the Syrian Portfolio at the Atlantic Council in Washington, D.C. So, welcome Jomana. I'm glad that you are our guest today. How are you doing? Hi, Danny. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm doing I'm doing good today. It's the end of a very long week um, and the beginning of February. Maybe the beginning of a new start, like something new and fresh. If only we can hope. <laughs> we can only hope. <laughs> right. So uh, I brought my amaretto to cheer to the start of the weekend because today is Friday now that we're recording. Um, and I brought my regular amaretto. Because with me, it's already afternoon. But what are you having? So I have my normal latte that I have every morning uh, that I make in my own machine. And it is in my mug that has the pictures of the four female Supreme Court justices. Um, And since I live in Washington, D.C., this is pretty local for me. 
That's very nice. I think it's a very cool cup. Thank you. Can I put you on the spot and ask you what the names are of these uh, judges? <laughs> um, so on my on my mug, uh, we have here uh, the first uh, female justice, who was Sandra Day O'Connor. Um, then we had the recently departed RBG, uh, who who we all know, uh, Justice Ginsburg. We have uh, Sonia Sotomayor, and then we have Justice Elena Kagan. That's great. I think I wouldn't have gone any further than RBG. Because there's been so much about her. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. But as a lawyer, I mean, all of them contributed a lot to, um, I think, the Supreme Court, not just in their capacities as female justices, but really as brilliant jurists in the United States. Wonderful. Let's cheer to that. Cheers. Yes. Cheers. Okay. I'd like to kick off uh, with a few short questions just to get started. And my first one is, when you wake up in the morning... What is the first thing that you think about? Is it your PhD research on your mind or your job at the Atlantic Council? The first thing I think about when I wake up in the morning has to be my Atlantic Council work. So for the past um, three years, I was fortunate in that I just needed a part-time job and between my scholarships managed to uh, make living in Washington, D.C. work. Um, but I just transitioned into a full-time post at the Atlantic Council in October so more recently, it has become, you know, the first thing that I address, but certainly not the only thing. Um, but it just requires really a lot of time management. Right. Yeah. I want to say congratulations on the new position Thank that you. is full time. Um, but it Thank must you. be a struggle a bit. I think we'll talk about that later, too. Yes. Mm -hmm. Sounds good. Yeah. No, I mean, it is a, it is a struggle and it's really a test of your resolve and your desire to actually graduate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, talking about maybe something uh, stressful and very busy, um, if you would be able to escape, if you could beam yourself like some kind of superpower anywhere today, where would you go? So I'd definitely be somewhere in the Mediterranean. I mean, I would be, you know, the entire coast is a beautiful coast, whether it's, you know, uh, you know, Greece, um, Turkey, uh, you know, Alexandria, I would take it. I mean, it would just be... It would be really nice to be somewhere that is warmer. It's very cold mm -hmm. here uh, on the East Coast. Um, and it's just, I love listening to the sound of water. It relaxes me. And I think sometimes when you live in a very you know, busy city, and you have a very active life. You just crave silence and nature. And, and I miss that. All right. That sounds good. Yeah, the Mediterranean. I miss that part of the world at this moment, mostly because of the food. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, that too. That too. <laughs> All right. Uh, my last short question um, is about your uh, Twitter, because I noticed that you have over seven and a half thousand followers and your handle is Jomana Kadu, which then people will be able to find after they're listening to this episode. Uh, but what is it you tweet about? So, I mean, anyone who visits my Twitter would probably see that there's a lot of Syria related content. I, I run the Syria file at the Atlantic Council, so it's part of my job and and I would say part of my passion, obviously, to inform people about what is happening in Syria, how the conflict has progressed. Um, my interests also extend into Lebanon, into Turkey, um, you know, Russia, other actors that I think um, are very much involved in, in the Syria conflict, but also in the region at large. Um, I occasionally tweet about, you know, things related to, you know, the Muslim American community in the United States. Um, because I am sort of, I'm from that greater community. 
Um, and probably some things about, you know, Arab Americans, Arab Americans in civil service, Arab Americans active in government. Um, you know, I'm obviously, I'm, I'm also Syrian American, um, that grew up in the Midwest. So I obviously have a very sort of, um, uh, you know, multiple sort of identities that I relate to, um, all of which I'm proud of and, and all of which I sort of, uh, connect with in different ways. Okay. As you should be proud of where you came from. I do like that. Uh, I am already following you, so I can't wait to see what your next posts are about, your next tweets, I have to say. <laughs> All right. I think I want to hear more about how you got to where you are today. Um, as you mentioned, you're in charge of the uh, Syria, Syria portfolio at the Atlantic Council, um, but it was a bit of a journey because I noticed on your resume that you started with a BA in uh, human biology and international studies. I'm not sure what human biology and international studies has to do with each other in one BA. <laughs> uh, and then afterwards, you also continued with studying law and getting a JD. So what happened there? What made you shift and what was it like to change fields? Yeah, so very good question. Um, as the oldest child of a immigrant family, I mean, I was born in Syria. I came here when I was very young. Um, there was sort of this unspoken, I wouldn't say pressure, but sort of expectation that if you were really good in school, that you were going to apply yourself in medicine or dentistry or pharmacy um, and and go on and pursue a career in that in that field. And, and I was fortunate. I mean, I did well in high school. Um, I stayed local because my family... As I as I mentioned, we're from the Midwest. We're actually from Kansas. Um, I got a good scholarship from the University of Kansas, so I decided to pursue my studies. And I definitely had, you know, um, I had my passion, which was politics. It was history. It was, you know, sociology. Um, and then there was what I initially was doing, which pushing myself into the medical field. And I was, you know, considering doing pharmacy and and dentistry. And then I realized once I got to organic chemistry that I actually just did not like the field. I was like, I, <laughs> it's not your thing. I can't do this. It's not. And I couldn't do this for the rest of my life. And, but I thought to myself, I mean, I was already three years in, let me finish the degree. Um, but I was already taking, you know, political science and history and other courses related courses. So I just went ahead and, and did a degree in both. Um, and and graduated and before the end of my I mean the way it works in the United States obviously is that before the end of your last year you end up applying for professional schools if you want to pursue so I went ahead and applied um, to law school and took the uh, you know the LSAT at the time and I again decided to stay local um, for a couple of reasons but most importantly because I am the oldest of six children and I really. Family is really important to me. And so I wanted to, you know, pursue a degree where I could still get to know my youngest sibling because he's 15 years between me and him. So okay. I stayed local. It was a great experience. Um, and I focused on inter tra international trade and finance. And I, I, I finished that JD. And then um, I graduated the year of the economic crash in the United States. Oh. So in 2009, I was supposed to start at a big law firm in, in Kansas City. Um, and that was a time where a lot of law firms were, you know, laying off people. It was just a really hard time in the United States. So as a new grad, I was looking for a new job since I had to kind of start over again, since the firm I was supposed to go to, I, I wasn't going to go. 
I ended up doing some publications and and did some, you know, a lot of reading and and exploration, a lot of applications for jobs. And I ended up landing a job in Washington at a law firm where I worked on patent law, interestingly, but I was qualified for that because I had a science major. Okay. So you could only, you know, you only, I, I also took a patent exam during my sort of year of searching for jobs. So um, I was able to work in the field of patent law, um, which again, I realized was very boring, but was making money. So, but it, and it also allowed me to come to Washington. Right. And so I took the opportunity having interned in Washington when I was in law school, I wanted to return. I took the opportunity and then I used all of my lunch breaks anytime I had after work to meet people throughout the city so that I could figure out what I wanted to do with my life and have a more interesting job, frankly. Right. Can I just take one step back before we continue from sure. there? Because now we just arrived to DC, right? Um, and you were saying that before that you were supposed to work in Kansas. It didn't really work out. And then you started uh, publishing. Yes. That was after you finished your master's degree and before you started anything else. So would that yes. help to publish, to find a job as an attorney later on? So I worked on a piece, a longer piece. Um, I mean, it was, I think, 20 pages now. You can find it online. It was called International Trade and Agriculture in Syria. And and the reason I wrote a piece on that is my professors, one of them asked me, you know, they were starting an International Trade and Agriculture Center in in Kansas. And you may think, like, that's kind of bizarre, but the interesting thing about the University of Kansas is we had really excellent international trade professors um, one in particular, Raj Bala, who started the certificate program. He was a um, a lawyer at the WTO. I mean, he 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 works extensively in this field. And then because we're in Kansas, agriculture is very important. Um, and so it was a way to sort of bring the international to the national, to the more local. Um, and it was a very interesting uh, piece. And it made me, uh, you know, a sort of research area. And it made me you know, it was my first sort of rigorous attempt at um, writing post-law school. Okay. And yeah, I think it's, I, I think it's great. It allowed me to have, you know, a serious piece of writing, um, but especially that was not necessarily in a law journal. So that was explored a little bit, the idea of policy, um, which I, as you can see from my resume later pursued. Mm -hmm. That's interesting yeah. because when I uh, just finished my MA, I didn't really know anything about publishing or that part of academia yet. So it's interesting to see that you started talking about that right after finishing your degree. Um, and at that yeah. point in time, you were still uh, looking at jobs in industry. And that's also what you were looking for in DC, right? Maybe something more interesting than the patent law you were working on. Yeah, I mean, I was considering staying in law, but also throwing my hat in the ring for policy posts. I also, at the time, I came to Washington. So I came in late 2010. And in early 2011, the Arab Spring started. And so, you know, for me, the Middle East had always been an area of, of passion. In my international studies courses, I focus mostly on the Middle East. Obviously, I have Arabic as a... It was my first language, actually. Um, and so I decided... It would be great, although it would pay me much less if I went into policy. But that really was where my heart was. And I, I think like many people in D.C., um, you don't pursue policy for the money necessarily, at least definitely not in the beginning. You really pursue it because it's where your passion is. It's where you think you might make a difference. Uh, some people also do it for the power, but you certainly don't start off that way. Um, right. Yeah. 
Okay, so uh, let's continue from DC. As you were saying, you were looking for something else. Yeah, so I um, I wanted to do something else. And I think one of the most important things that I learned from my law school was how to network. And, you know, there are different ways you can network. There are ways you can network that is a very, it's a very superficial transaction between two people. And then there's ways to network where you actually get to know people, take the time to get to meet them, and in that way, I think access more meaningful advice about what to do. Um, I think, you know, I think it can become very clear in D.C. that when people, you know, just interact with one another for power, or for, you know, s- simply just connections or uh, social connections. But I think it makes a difference and people can discern very quickly if you actually are trying to get to know them as people and take interest in their families and their children and their jobs and how they're feeling. Um, and so I tried to do as much of that as possible, honestly, when I hit the ground in okay. Washington. Um, and I used every spare minute to figure out what I wanted to do in my life. Um, you know, I had mixed, I had mixed uh, results, obviously. Um, sometimes as a female who loved to help other females, I sought out female advice. Not all women were nice to me when I reached out to them, you mm. know, and, and, and then right. I really, you know, and then the opposite sometimes happened where, you know, a man that I expected not to have very much time to help me at all gave me the most time. And so it really just, what I realized is it's really just a hit or miss and it really just depends on the person and, and how um, generous they may be with their time from, especially from someone who's, who's too young to be able to give them anything back in return. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did a lot of that. I really worked hard that year. I mean, I remember going home because of these meetings. Sometimes I would go home from work at like one or two a.m. just so I could make sure I fit in during the day some of those coffee meetings, and I'd make up that time. And working at a law firm is not a fun <laughs> thing. I think a lot of people would tell you that it may be rewarding in its own way, but but it, it's not a fun thing. So I I did a lot of that, and then I also had a chance to volunteer with mm-hmm. an organization that one of my friends led. And through that organization, I met um, my friend Akram, who was at the Brookings Institution and who was about to leave. He was about to go pursue a PhD program uh, in North Carolina. And um, I spoke to him about Brookings and he said, you know, Joanna, you're overqualified. Usually, you know, this is an internship post initially and, you know, you wouldn't be paid. And you know, why would you leave a job in law to do this? And I said, yeah, listen, why? I don't, I don't know. If I don't know if I want to take a jump. I said, let's let, can I start off with three months? And if I love it, then I'm going to do everything to stay in it. And if not, it's not too long of a period. I can come back into law. And I went there. And then when his post opened up formally as a researcher, um, I applied and I got it. And I was really, I mean, I happened to be at the right place at the right time. I mean, a lot of times these things sometimes are pure luck, pure coincidence. Mm -hmm. You know, I was Arabic speaking. There weren't that many researchers that spoke Arabic at Brookings. Um, Actually, aside from Akram, I don't think there were any. Um, okay. And I really applied myself. Yeah. I, I mean, at the time, because he, he did a lot of the Arabic speaking as a researcher, mm-hmm. not to say anything of the scholars themselves. But I, I took that opportunity to really apply myself, try to make the best impression as I could, get to know the scholars, you know, and I, I got that job, which was which really then changed my life. So that worked out. <laughs> it did. The better. It did. And the, and the. Sure, and the people that I met at the Brookings Institution, a lot of my, are a lot of my present day mentors. They're people who took the time to invest in me as a woman, as a person, um, as a researcher, and I still 
talk to and I'm friends with. Um, and I can, you know, they've supported me in other job applications, you know, almost 10 years later, actually, since I started there in 2012. I can't believe it's been 10 years. But yeah, they've, they've, been, they've been a part of my life ever since and have really changed my life in Washington. So from what I hear so far, uh, you've had quite a few changes because in the start you thought maybe yes. you're going into pharmacy or uh, becoming a doctor, right? That's why you study human biology and international studies. Then you're like, no, this is not my thing. You did finish it, uh, but you continued with law. And then you were supposed to work in Kansas. That didn't work out because of the situation. You moved to a different city. You worked in patent law, right? And then you really needed another change because it was not too much fun in your case for you. And that worked out. So then you were working as a policy officer, right? Was that the position? Yes. A research associate. Yeah. But yeah. now you're pursuing an SJD, which is also in law, like a, a PhD in law, right? Um, so does that mean that you're now taking a step back into law or are you still focusing on policy? So, uh, I, I mean, the, the thing is, is that I, I, I picked a subject in my SJD that would be allow me to blend both the legal um, and policy aspects okay. of my life. So after Brookings, I continued to, you know, I worked in the private sector for one year, and then I worked in government um, at the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. And that's when I knew I wanted to go back and pursue higher studies. Okay. So my father is a professor. He's a professor of engineering, but he's a professor and has really instilled within us. And I, I think it's very sort of expected for the sort of the immigrant experience is that you find a lot of immigrants who come to this country recognizing that we have some of the best education systems in the world and push their kids to, you know, get more and more degrees and, you know, and, and find academic success. And I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for my father for pushing me in that direction. Um, cool. He pushed my sister, who's now a doctor, my other sister who's pursuing, pursuing her PhD studies at Johns Hopkins. And so I'm, you know, I'm grateful that his you know, his, his lessons have been instilled within us. And so when I was at the commission, I, I had waited, but I knew I needed to wait for the right topic. Like that was my struggle is I want to apply, but I want something that really moves me from within. And I understand that not everyone pursues PhD studies because it reflects something within them. But for me, that was the case. And, um, you know, I always had, um, questions about, identity and what parts of your identity motivate you to do certain things to identify in certain ways. Um, what do you advocate as a result of your identity? And I had worked on the Middle East by then for a few years and had seen sort of what the Arab Spring had done and sort of that shift in how people identified themselves, right? Like what made people want to call themselves a Sunni or a Shia or a Kurd or an Assyrian? Etc. And and so at the commission, my job was to talk to a lot of religious communities. And there was one man in particular that I met early on because I started off, you know, I worked on Syria, Iraq, Turkey, and and Egypt while I was at the commission. But visiting Iraq to me was probably the most interesting. Um, one, because Iraq is not just one of those accessible places where you can travel to all the time. I mean, you know, tour as, as easily as, as you would like, um, especially because in those years, that was the year ISIS came to power. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was just not, it was not as what it used to be. Um, and I met a Christian priest named Emmanuel Yohanna, and he was really 
important to sort of my understanding of this because we would have discussions when I would go to Erbil and I would talk to him, you know, about why so much of his parish was going, leaving Iraq, why they were coming Mm -hmm. to the United States, why they were choosing to emigrate. And he was explaining to me how he, you know, his position as a Christian leader, how he couldn't, as much as it pained him to see, you know, the Christians of the Middle East leave, he was in no position to convince them to stay um, because he couldn't guarantee them safety. He couldn't guarantee them a bright future, but the communities mattered to him. And I would ask him like, you know, well, you know, what if we just created a system where everyone's, you know, created equal look in the United States, you know, we, we have this system that is blind to gender or race, at least on the books, right? right. Legally, it mm-hmm. is blind to gender, to race, to sexual orientation, to all of these things. Like, we could just change the laws in Iraq and everything would be, you know, we would eventually, mm-hmm. you know, end up there. So what did he say? So this was, you know, he said, I, I admire the, the I, I very much appreciate the notion of citizenship and it is a very meaningful one. But he said, you know, in my lifetime, and even in previous immediate generations, it has not been, uh, there, there are scars, there are wounds, there are historical wounds, and there are current wounds that are being created. As I said, ISIS had just risen to power that make it difficult for me to convince people to live together. And at the end of the day, you know, people's outlook regarding, for example, the future of their children, um, the stability required to raise you know, capable, uh, ambitious children, um, flourishing communities. You know, it can't be built on the fantasy of equal citizenship if it's not actually applied, if it's not actually lived. And there was there was another doctor who, so, so that was really important for me to understand. There was another doctor that had fled Syria that I had met in Jordan. And I also talked to him about a similar concept because I remember him one time telling me, referring to someone he had met as an Alawite. And I said, you know, why do you have to refer to them by their, you know, by their sect? Like, why don't you just refer to them as being Syrian? And he said, Jumana, let me tell you a story of a woman. The the reason, you know, a woman that made me realize why these things matter. He was the doctor of a woman who had psychologically, um, you know, completely been impaired after she had fled Syria. And the reason was um, they, they, they there were soldiers looking for her husband. Um, when they didn't find him, they they put her in a closet, closed the door, and proceeded to burn her baby alive in the living room. Wow. And the entire time this was happening, she could hear a distinct Alawite accent. So an accent that is usually mm-hmm. associated with Alawites on the coast. And he said, Jumana, like for this woman, she can't just think of them anymore as just Alawites. Like, sorry, excuse me, as just Syrian. Mm-hmm. There are certain associations and 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 of course this has been repeated with different communities across Syria and different parts of the Middle East where there's been war and and he said I can't just tell her to be neighbors with these people um it's going to be difficult for the rest of her life um to associate with someone of that sect and so it just made me realize that I have certain ideals certain liberal you know values of the liberal world order whatever whatever you want to refer to it as and then there are some realities that we are faced with and we have to confront directly. And the only thing that makes me feel better about this sometimes is understanding that solutions need to be locally oriented. They need buy-in from local communities. You can't discount it mm-hmm. as much as you may try 
to push them in a certain direction, you're imposing also a solution that the local population may not be in favor of. So it's really an important balance. And to make a long story short, this was where my PhD topic, you know, was, it was based on these conversations I had right? Um, so and really, why I decided to apply. Really these experiences you had uh, during your work that allowed you to travel to these places and speak yep. to people who have all these, well, that was one particular terrible experience um, that you spoke about, really made you also look at not only the knowledge that you had from the US and everything you had learned um, about equality there and the law and how to maybe apply that to different places to make it a better place, but to, you also have to consider the context of that place, yeah. right? Sure. That's very interesting. And you said it in a very intriguing way too with these examples. So thanks for sharing that. Um, before I'm going to ask you to tell me more about your particular research topic, I wanted to talk about um, at what point it was exactly that you were like, okay, with all these experiences and all these stories that I heard, I now need to do a PhD. And um, where did you apply? Or did you only want to do it in DC and nowhere else? And uh, was it the PhD and the program that you applied for what you expected it to be? So I only applied to Georgetown. And the reason okay. is because I, I was working, um, like I said, full time in government, and I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to leave government. Um, I was enjoying my work there. I was learning a lot. And, and Georgetown had a program, which first I could, so I applied for initially in it directly to the SJD program. And they said, listen, we don't normally allow people to go into our SJD program directly. Um, actually, they had never, except they had made one exception for someone who had taught law for 10 years. So they said, okay, why don't, why don't you do our LLM program? And then that'll put you in a great position to pursue your SJD. Hmm. And so I, I did that. I also chose Georgetown because there was a particular professor, Dr. Lama Abu Aude, who is a you know Palestinian-American woman. Um, who had done a lot of work in that was, you know, really fascinating on, you know, the rights of women. She's a well-known Arab feminist um, and also someone who was, you know, quite also grounded in terms of her understanding. She grew up in a very political family, um, so also could understand sort of the political dynamics of the Middle East and could grasp sort of my desire to um, take what I'm learning in the classroom and apply it in the field. Um, and so I, I applied to her. She said, I'd be happy to be your advisor if they, if you get accepted into the dissertation, uh, to the SJD program, excuse me. And so I, yeah, I, Georgetown was the only program I applied in. Um, and I received, you know, a, a scholarship for my SJD. The reason I decided to apply to the PhD program is because I wanted to sit and think critically about some of these dynamics that I was working on and trying to get up to speed on in government. But as anyone in government will tell you, like, there's just not enough time to read, you know, 50 books about Iraq, you know, 50 books. Like, it's just you don't have enough time to do that and keep up with your work. And so a lot of it is practical experiences, the conversations you you have, like I said, which were great, by the way. But I wanted to take a step back and understand, like, how did we get here? How did this happen? The same with Bosnia. I mean, I grew up, one of my first foreign policy memories, I remember, was me, you know, going to, as my dad, as I mentioned, my dad was a PhD student. I mean, he was a PhD, he's a professor, so when he was mm -hmm. a PhD student, 
the tragedy in Bosnia was unfolding. And, and so I remember being, I think it was seven or eight and holding, you know, a poster at a, you know, on campus at a peaceful, you know, demonstration against the massacre that was happening in Srebrenica. And I wanted to know more. I wanted to have an excuse to say, I need to understand what happened here historically. How did this happen? Mm -hmm. And my PhD research has like really unveiled to me a part of Bosnian history that I never knew um, about the dynamics between the Serbs, the Croats, the Bosnians, that I'm sure experts in this field know, um, but that I think the average people, even people who worked on some of these issues, might have not known. Okay, and you also mentioned already uh, what the important reasons for you were to start um, the studies at Georgetown, the LLM, and then the PhD, um, or also partially because of this professor who was there and also related to work that you wanted to be in this place. Um, sure. So was did, is the program what you expected it to be? Is it giving you what you wanted it to give you? Yeah, so I mean, I think for me, it's slightly not traditional because we don't have, it's the fourth higher degree, right, that I've I've gotten. So I've gotten a BA, a JD, LLM, SJD. So there's a certain level of expectation um, that you have amassed, you know, certain research. Most of my colleagues have all published. I mean, it's not, it's, you know, my classmates have published in a variety of fields. They've been working, for example, some of them in Supreme Courts internationally. They have wow. worked, you know, in different um, in different major international organizations and institutions as lawyers. So they assume you've come here with, you know, a, a understanding of how to engage in research and methodology. And so this program, the first two years, we did a lot of um, research, excuse me, a lot of methodology courses and a lot of legal philosophy, which I really appreciated because I think when I was in law school, it was some of that legal philosophy kind of goes over your head because if you go directly into law school, there are certain life experiences you haven't amassed, like certain, you know, I think some of the best, uh, you know, the, my most successful classmates in law school, a lot of them are people who had, for example, already bought a house, already, you know, gotten married. And the reason is, I mean, some of these things are practical, right? They had actually filled out the paperwork of when you get a mortgage, you know, all these things that we were learning about, for example, in <laughs> property law or business transactions, they had already done in, in person. And so this is just a matter of life experience and what you what you gain as you grow. Um, and so what doing an SJD does is sort of give you a chance to explore really the meaning of, for example, equality, the meaning of, you know, justice, a lot of these concepts and terms that we throw around. Um, it allows you to look at some of the more, you know, the granular historical uh, history, uh, you know, the, the granular historical concept, you know, the, the, these concepts that, um, that, that you throw around in law. And I, that part I found really interesting and made you think, you know, in a much deeper way about why we advocate for a lot of the things or why we believe a lot of the things that we do, especially as lawyers for me in my field. So it's mm -hmm. been, it's been great. And, and the rest of it, Aside from that, the first and second year, I mean, the rest of it has been really independent, which I appreciate, and which frankly has made me able to go back and work and apply and use that, use my studies as sort of another credential in in my basket of things. You know, and, and as a result, for example, I've been asked by the UN to serve on the Syrian Constitutional Committee that they have had, you know, it's been going for two years. Um I can't say we've been very successful because the greater conflict dynamics have been 
very difficult to say the least and not helpful in terms of moving this process forward. But I think it was because of my PhD background and studies that made me, that made them select me. And it has allowed me to sort of look at, so I'm simultaneously studying this and looking at different concepts and at the same time trying to apply it in a real life negotiation. And yeah, sometimes those things, it's very interesting to see, again, like I said, some of those discussions I had with the priest and with the Syrian doctor, you have same or similar discussions with 150 people that are involved in this constitutional process. Right. Sounds like an interesting program. (laughs) Um, And you said that uh, that was mostly in the start of the program, that you did more things together uh, and had these discussions and that now the stage of the PhD you're in now is more independent, which you also appreciate and I understand. So how do you combine your PhD research and a full-time job in the industry. So as I said earlier, it's a really a lot of time management. I mean, it involves um, getting up early, trying to make sure I, you know, emails can be some of the most time-consuming things. And I, I'm not a huge fan of admin work. I don't think anyone is. <laughs> um, but a lot of administrative things, excuse me, that you have to get out of the way. So I, um, you know, I try to get that out in the morning, try to set aside a few hours um you know, during, during the later part of the day in the evenings on the weekends to especially get through reading. Um, and then I do try to set aside, as you all know, like the challenge is setting aside, you know, several hour blocks where you can write because it takes you usually an hour or two Mm -hmm. before you get into the swing of things. Um, and so you can't just write in half an hour, right? So it's, for me, it's a matter of, you know, being able to set aside that time, um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's utilizing my weekends well. It's utilizing my evenings. Sometimes I switch and I, you know, do PhD readings in the morning, and then you know, nine ten a.m. hits, you know, sort of get on the clock for for the Atlantic Council. Um, okay. But yeah, that's and um, so basically, in a way, you're telling me that you're using every hour of every day. Uh, to combine your work and your research, uh, which is difficult enough. Yeah. But then how do you also juggle it with uh, your personal life? And how do you maintain your mental health? Do you have any tips for other people who are considering to do two things at the same time like you do? Uh, Listen, I think balancing your personal time with two other major competing, uh, you know, major competing um, priorities is not easy. I'm not going to pretend that it is. Um, if you do have a partner, they need to be supportive and understanding. Otherwise, it's not going to work. Um, but it's also recognizing and trying to be in the moment when you are actually with other people or engaging in your personal life, right? It also, and I'm I'm guilty of not doing this very well, but also, you know, putting aside your phone because a lot of these, you know, cutting out the distractions that come to you either while I'm working or while I'm reading, while I'm writing, and also while I'm I'm spending time with a significant other or, you know, family, which is, as I mentioned before, very important to me, close friends. Mm-hmm. Um, but frankly, it, it does involve you cutting out some things that may not have been or may not be an immediate priority, right? So like, I don't see as my friends as much as I would like to, you know, it also, and I, this year's definitely as I, as I hopefully finish my PhD this year, it's going to be involved saying no a lot more to social activities mm-hmm. and events and you know, excusing yourself from some of the the obligations that I normally would love to be at. Um, But in order to prioritize this in hopes that I could finish 
you know, this year and then resume sort of my life in all its fullness next year. Fingers crossed. Yeah. And I think the one thing I have to say about COVID is that it cut, for example, some of the transportation time or, you know, some of that time that you could then use, for example, to work out, to, uh, to get in, you know, maybe make dinner at home instead of constantly ordering in. And I think these things are all connected, right? Like your sleep, your eating, um, your ability to disconnect these, I think all help you think more clearly. I think that's when, like when you're finally able, and, and I think you know this, like when you're on a roll writing, it's, it's when you feel your brain is clear, like certain things make sense to you, right? That there's connections <laughs> being made. You feel motivated to be like, okay, I'm going to sit and I'm going to write this. Mm-hmm. Like I see now how all these things are related, but you can only create that space if you give yourself quiet and thinking time, time to analyze, time to reflect. And I get to do a bit of that, I would say, probably while I'm exercising or cooking. And so okay. those are things that are helpful um, and that I don't think I do enough of. But when I, when I really focus, I know it's a combination of things. So, Okay, those seem like good tips. Which, like you said, is not always easy. Uh, you need to also yeah. make an effort to make time for other things uh, and yeah. to juggle it, to make decisions about, yeah, what you do have time for and what you don't. So that's very sure. fair. Um, but from what I hear, you're also very passionate about your research topic. And that's probably what keeps you going. <laughs> it does. So as you're almost wrapping up your research, or at least within the next year, you probably have a lot to say about your research. <laughs> so what can you tell me uh, about what your research is all about? So for me, I, I mean, I, I touched on this earlier. It was grappling with the idea of what we, as sort of a greater international community that is part of this liberal world order, what we think and work towards as a community and how that can be confronted in a not so positive way by actual conditions and lived experiences of people. You know, I, I, I look at the Bosnian example and what's interesting to me, and this is something that I keep in mind as I work on Syria, and these are conversations and debates I've had in the Syria context, which is when, when the parties that were warring at, at war with each other during the Bosnian conflict, when they went to Dayton or with the, several attempts before Dayton, right? There were several peace attempts um, spearheaded by Europe and others before we finally got to Dayton. But at each at each of those peace processes, um, there was an insistence by the parties on collectivism and this notion that um, they wanted to be viewed as one group. So the Serbs wanted to be viewed as Serbs. The Bosnian Muslims wanted to be, you know, known as Bosniaks, Bosnian Muslims, etc. The okay. Croats also had had that sort of strong ideological uh, you know connection um and they they wanted to approach the negotiations with that. Now the problem with that of course from 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 just an outsider's perspective is what happens to the minorities? Mm-hmm. Right? Like where are they? They're not included in these three and there's been lawsuits you know, by, by, by Jewish residents and others, or, uh, I believe it was also, um, members from the, uh, Roma community uh, that have, that have obviously raised 
lawsuits against us because they're like, we're not even included in, in this mm-hmm. negotiation process. Um, and, and the other thing is, is once you enshrine that those identitarian principles within a constitutional framework or within a peace framework that stops a war, it becomes very difficult to change it later on. In fact, it can lead to civil war if you try to unravel it. Right. We see some of this in Lebanon where there is, you know, this, this agree that there's thought if agreement, but there's also, um, agreements that are not codified, that are not actually written um, into some of these agreements that set the tone or establish a precedent that they then can't get out of. The same in Iraq. For example, in Iraq, you have the president is always Kurdish. Mm -hmm. The prime minister is uh, always Shia. And the speaker of the house is a Sunni. This is not actually written anywhere in the constitution. Okay. It became from the first time after the invasion of Iraq, so in 2005, from the first establishment of sort of the these positions, it, it became the common practice. And 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 because it's a common practice and not codified in law, you have another problem because if, if it's not written anywhere, how can you even amend it, right? right. You, there's not even a process to amend it. It becomes common practice. And the parties don't want to give up those positions. Um, coming back to the Bosnia example, you know, you have a revolving presidency between, you know, the three different identitarian, you know, the, the communities in Bosnia. And they don't want you to change that. Um, but the problem is also that that identitarian, ident- you know, the uh, identitarian politics also continues into civil service. So they want, you know, 33% in civil service to be Croat, 33% right. to be Bosniak, 33 I mean, it, it trickles into every part of government, every part of society. This is, you know, this is part of of how communities define themselves, the things they want, the things they think they're entitled to, and changing it is is not an easy feat. On top of that, you have historical grievances, for example, in these conflicts prior to the Iraqi invasion, prior to the to the Yugoslav, you know, the war in Yugoslavia, that that were important. And that people didn't take into consideration that were that were outside of outside of these communities, and that resonate. And so then you end up having ethno sectarian leadership that hearkens and reminds, you know, the masses their specific community with, "Do you remember what happened to us hmm. in thirteen, you know, fifty six? Uh, I'm not getting the exact date off the top right. of my head, right? But in, in the you know in the 14th century, what happened to the Serbian community? I mean, these are things that are actually still, you know, Milosevic himself utilized these dates and these events to rally people, um, his own community to rally to rally them, which then eventually led to, to a war. Um, but without understanding, you know, his, the history of these communities um, and why they insist on certain principles, um, I think it becomes really hard to advise them to, to, I mean, that's if, if your advice is solicited, but it becomes very difficult to then provide feedback in these communities. And so jumping to the next, my final section on my PhD on Syria, mm-hmm. you know, you do have, on one level, you do have identitarian conflict. I mean, you, you do have not, it's certainly not the most, uh, each conflict, and I, I, I always remember, each conflict really has its own context. So in some cases in Syria, sects and religions and ethnicities matter. And in some cases it doesn't. It really depends on 
what may be at stake. You have the Kurdish community at large in Syria mm-hmm. that generally has really suffered grievances from the Assad regime, not just the current one, but the former one. And and they are still holding on to some of those grievances because they were never addressed or they were addressed incredibly superficially. And then you have the Sunni community, which was the majority population in Syria that was completely sidelined and marginalized by the minority ruling, some of the minority ruling Alawite uh, community members in, you know, in the, you know, Hafiz al-Assad and his son Bashar al-Assad certainly doesn't apply necessarily to the entire communities. But I think the most important thing I've learned is, first and foremost, it's important to understand the history of these communities and societies. People don't always hate each other for no reason. I mean, there, there's a reason to understand their anger, their marginalization, the feelings they have. In order to address them, you need to know why they existed in the beginning. And they're not always created by outside parties, right? Like, I think that's something that it's become very common to say, you know, well, the U.S. created this mess and it is the cause of X, Y, and Z or, you know, Britain Mm -hmm. or France. And I'm not saying, and I'm not saying that these actors, depending on the context, were not responsible for sometimes making things worse or sometimes actually creating the conditions that led to those, those issues. But that's never the full story. That's never the full story. And local actors at times do do horrible things to each other. And, and when they do things to each other, they don't get along with other local actors. And so I'm just saying that these are lessons that I've learned that have made me realize like the role of the so-called West in some of these conflicts and the role of, of locals themselves in these conflicts. Because I think unless you understand that, you can't actually work to helping solve them or prevent these kinds of conflicts in the future. So again, uh, from what I understand is that there's a lot of uh, context. You need to understand the context of uh, historically, culturally, um, of how groups do live together in a country or in an area and that you're really digging very deep into that, uh, which sounds very interesting to me. Um, I think you're doing a PhD based on articles, right? Not a dissertation. Yes. So at Georgetown, they give you the option of either writing sort of a book-like form or writing three articles. Um, And I have to say in law, I mean, lawyers don't, they did, some of them do write books, but there's definitely a heavy emphasis on writing law journal articles. And so for me, I've chosen the law journal uh, route and I've, I published a piece on women's quotas in the Syrian constitution when I first started my dissertation, because I, I really wanted to look more closely. So this didn't count towards graduation, but I wanted to look more closely at, you know, that this, this whole debate over quotas and do they work and do they not work and why they might work in certain contexts and why they might not be necessary in other contexts. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was published with William and Mary Law, Law Journal. And then um, I now have a piece coming out with Emory University that is basically my first part of my dissertation, which is on Iraq. Okay. I'm I'm wrapping up edits with Bosnia now and hoping to submit that to publication as well. Very nice. Fingers crossed. So if I keep track of your Twitter account, I will probably be able to get the link to the publications of the articles. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> yes. All right. Um, I have one question I wanted to ask you related to your research uh, and maybe a bit of methodology too, because you already mentioned that uh, you speak Arabic, right? Which is great asset. So at your work, as you mentioned in your former job, right? That there weren't that many people who actually were able to speak Arabic. Do you think that anyone who doesn't understand Arabic um, can do similar work and research as you do? The short answer is yes, they can. That being said, it 
law, a lot of law is about words, right? Because it is built on, you know, uh, you know, certain terms, you know, a particular word can mean many different things depending on the context. They can have many different definitions. Um, terms are incredibly important in the field of law. And so having the language um, in which something was originally written, I think, in the legal space is is incredibly helpful, if not at times mandatory. That said, it's not impossible. I mean, I've done my work on Bosnia I certainly don't speak any of the Slavic languages. Okay. Um, I will say that, I, and I will admit that I did struggle with the Bosnia uh, portion because I didn't, I was relying on people to translate or, you know, and, and I don't have many friends from the Balkans and I, they were all very busy people. So I don't necessarily want to go to them with everything. Um, but it is, you know, and there were certain, you know, agreements uh, especially from like the seventies um, and before, not all of which you could even access in English. So there weren't necessarily even translations available. And it does make me as a researcher very hesitant about publishing certain sections because I don't feel I the, the 100% confidence that I'd like to feel the way I would about my pieces on Syria or my pieces on Iraq, uh, just because the language really does give you, it's a gateway to understanding, I think a lot of, important documents that impact that have, that like I said that give you the context necessary to understanding today. All right. Are there any other skills in addition to language even though like you said and you also worked on the Bosnian case without you could also manage but what skills do you think are important to have or to develop um especially while doing a PhD if someone wants to work in your field? For me having worked in the policy space it helped that I had contacts and or was resourceful enough to know how to access certain people that had actually worked on these agreements to get sort of the inside story, the inside scoop. Many of them have written memoirs, they write books, etc. But a lot of times having those one-on-one -on -one conversations reveal that there are certain things that they might have not felt comfortable putting in a book or being very public about. Um, you know, I spoke to, you know, Iraqis who helped write um, you know, different parts of the constitution, different parts of the, um, the, the towel that the Americans, um, helped, uh, you know, push forward. Um, it's sorry, that was in, that was in place, uh, for a year before the constitution went into effect. You know, like I said, that I'd negotiated Dayton. And so it gives me, uh, it gave me like sort of the ability to ask someone, like a lot of times when you read a book, you're like, God, I really wish I could ask the author, <laughs> nice. what did they mean by this? Or what happened after this? So it helps to be resourceful and know people um, who've worked on these things in real life. Um, it's not always the case, but it, but it's definitely helpful. Okay. That sounds like a good tip. Uh, but it does sound that for something like that, you do need to be in the right place, right? And then Washington DC would be a good place to be. Sure. Yeah. 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 That's true. That's true. All right. Fair enough. Well then, um, I think I've already reached my last question and the most important one that this show is all about And that is, what are you going to do with that, right? After the PhD, hopefully soon, are you thinking of staying in industry, continuing in academia? Can one do both? Yes, of course. I mean, I think, again, location, 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 right? In a place like Washington, we do have a lot of people here who are both in the think tank world or in the private sector or in government. And then they also, you know, teach uh, their adjuncts or their, you know, part-time 
uh, fellows, researchers um, at different institutions. Um, and I would absolutely like to blend. I don't see myself as a full-time professor. I really, I feel very informed by the field, by the practical, uh, you know, by the industry. The industry helps me constantly write better and think more sharply because like I read about all these things in my books and then I go out and I'm like, oh, that's not actually possible. I see what you're saying. Like, this is, this would be a really great idea, but like people actually don't want to listen to this. Right. And so, and so it's, it's, it's something that I do um, hope to combine. I, I'd like to go back into government. Um, we'll see. And uh, I, I would, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I'm going to stay in Washington or not. It's just, a, we'll see where life takes me. Right. That sounds very healthy to keep all options open. Yeah. I wanted to ask uh, one last thing, maybe, just because I'm yeah. curious. I saw that you've been doing yeah. quite a lot of pro bono work uh, on your resume as well, and that you're also currently working yeah. on a project. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that? So I also, I'm the co-founder of a nonprofit in Syria. So it's a, it's probably, it's been my pro bono work, but probably the most rewarding work of my life. It's a organization I started off with my father uh, that, was humani- that is humanitarian in focus, We started it when Homs was being attacked. So Homs is the city of my birth, and my father's also. And, you know, my father has always worked in philanthropy efforts. And he initially just asked me to help him, you know, sign up the organization legally, you know, do all the 501c3 paperwork. And the next thing I knew, he had he had dragged me into co-founding an entire NGO with him. Uh, okay. But it's been an incredible journey. One, because I got to know even my father working with him on that will be always a, a really sweet memory to um, it allowed me to actually do something, I think, with my own hands to try to help make people's lives better, which I don't think we always get a chance to do in life. Um, but to be able to be an advocate for our staff, our communities in Syria that were being bombarded, um, especially doctors, nurses that were being targeted, school children that lost their, you know, their schools, you know, women that were just looking for, you know, that needed help in raising families. We've, you know, we've been able to help, you know, I think millions of people. We've we've done over, you know, a hundred and I think $15 million work of, worth of work inside of Syria. You know, we've had wow. more than 2,000 staff members inside of, of Northwest Syria now. And they are all people who Um, what I love about working with them, and they are they are Syrians who want to help themselves, and they have not left their country. They have chosen to stay, to remain, um, in order to make their lives and the lives of their communities better. And and I admire them for that, and I have learned so many lessons from them as a result of what really sacrifice and and your and your humanity uh, means. And and so. You know, it's something that I that I continue to to do advocacy for. I continue to, you know, do outreach for, uh, public relations for, just because it's something that, um, it's it's like you know, it's it's a personal cause that I care deeply about. All right. What is the name of this yeah. NGO? Syria Relief and Development. All right. Um, I'll be sure to look that up and see if I can help. Thank you. So it sounds like a wonderful initiative. Thank you, Danny. All right. And I'd like to wrap up with just a few short questions. And they're not actually short sure. questions, but I do expect short answers. That is the trick here. Okay. <laughs> okay, so the first one is, what do you consider to be your most important contribution to your field? Okay. So as 
ultimately what I would like is as a sort of as an Arab American, especially when it comes to my two parts of my dissertation that are on Iraq and Syria, I'd like to sort of bridge the understanding between, you know, what American foreign policymakers seek to achieve um, by participating in a lot of these constitutional negotiations and agreements and, you know, conflict mitigation, et cetera, and, and how that interacts with local perceptions, local needs. That's really what I've, I've tried to do in my writing. I've tried, I've tried to really link the theoretical with what people have told me, especially people who cannot necessarily speak English, uh, but, but, but local leaders, what, I, what I've tried to kind of make, be the ex- person who can help exchange those ideas back and forth so that we can find a good uh, medium uh, that, that helps people get out of conflict situations but also in a way that is that is stable and long-lasting. No wonder that you use every hour of the day <laughs> to work on that, because <laughs> that's uh, quite ambitious, but also very impressive. All right, talking about impressive, who has impressed you most with what they have accomplished? Anywhere? Yes, anywhere. Um, I mean, listen, I'm going to be cliche and, and mention you know, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, just because, and cliche only because I, you know, I, I know so many, so many people, you know, especially the last year since she passed away. I mean, it's been a, mm. she left a lasting mark, I think, on the legal community on both sides of the aisle. But what I, what was most important to me, I think the lesson that I we take away from her is that she looked at a problem and found so many different ways to approach it without necessarily, the, the, ro- the road to solving something is not always the most direct road. It can involve a lot of detours. It can involve uh, looking sometimes at things from all angles in order to actually reach the audiences that you're looking for. And uh, yeah, I would, I, I would love, you know, I adopt some of this thinking in my life. I'm certainly not a traditional PhD student. So I'd like to think that maybe in my very, very small way that maybe I've unconsciously sort of taken some of those lessons and, and applied it. That sounds very good. Uh, you're not the first one who's a little bit cliche, but you've explained it very well, so it sounded very good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No worries about that. All right, then when I got to my very, very last question, and that is, how do you relax after a hard day of work? So I do, I think I've utilized walks a lot more, not just because of COVID, but I think because they really help you think through things. And I, I think long walks have been... You know, I used to, before COVID, was running around, zipping around, trying to get everything done. And I realized that sometimes an hour of a quiet walk can make such a difference in, in how you think and how you write and how you even assess your own personal problems, that it can go a long way. I know it's nothing exciting, but I really, I underestimated the power of just a, a nice long walk, especially in, I, I live next to a very nice park in Washington, D.C., and, and it can do wonders on some days. Yeah, I asked, how do you relax? Not how did you get excited every day after work? <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> after a long yeah. day, we just really need to unwind, um, take it yeah. easy, take a break. And this sounds like a, a very nice way. All right, Vimana, thank you so much for joining me on this episode today. Your academic journey is truly interesting and inspiring. I also want to thank the audience for listening again. Don't forget to connect with us. Um, we are What To Do With That. We're on social media, on YouTube, and we have a website. We'd love to hear from you there. 
And you should know, as I've mentioned, that Jomana also is in Twitter, and you are invited to connect with her. You can find her account with the handle at Jomana Kadul. Shall I spell it out? Sure. Uh, Q-A-D-D-O-U-R. That's how to find it. All right. Thanks again. Thank you, Danny. Pleasure to be here with you. 